Every day, traders and investors dive in to tackle the ever-changing markets to find opportunity. Futures Radio Show is your number one source for answers to the questions that all market participants want to ask. Veteran futures trader Anthony Crudelli sits down with the most influential leaders and top traders in the industry. Now, here's your host, Anthony Crudelli. What's up, everybody? Anthony Crudelli here, and thank you for tuning in to this month's Best Moments episode. Futures Radio Show is sponsored by CME Group. They are the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. CME Group's markets help individuals and businesses around the world effectively manage risk. For access to free educational tools and resources for the active individual trader, please visit activetrader.cmegroup.com. Remember, new shows are posted on Mondays and Thursdays. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes. This show is also sponsored by Trading Technologies, FTSE Russell, and RJO Futures. It was another busy month on the podcast, so I took all of my favorite clips from each episode and put them into one episode for you to enjoy. So without further ado, let me take you to our best moments from last month. I've been a, a big bull in gold and silver for years and remain so. And I think silver in particular is probably, in my opinion, the most compelling asset in the world right now. Okay. Why? <laughs> so uh, the silver has been weighed down over the past couple months because, you know, some days it trades like an industrial metal since half of its use is, is pretty much industrial metal demand. Uh, right now, well, that a lot of that demand used to be film and cameras. Now it's solar panels, electric vehicles, batteries, electronics. Uh, so when the global economy collapsed, self-induced, of course, then you saw a, a big drop in the demand for silver. But then you have t times when <clears throat> silver has a 4,000-year-plus 4, history of being a monetary metal and being a form of money, which gold pretty much always is because of the very limited and tiny industrial uses that gold has. So now you have this disconnect where the, going back to 19, the mid-1970s, call it 1975, let's just say, the, the average, and it's been above, it's been below, the average gold to silver ratio is about 60 times. Well, in March, that ratio got to 120 times. So double the normal average. So now this is, this is art, not science. It's a very simplistic way of, of sort of valuing silver. But because of thousands of years of monetary history, you could, you could still measure the relationship between the two precious metals and see how, so quote unquote, cheap silver is relative to gold. And now that you have the global economy, which I think is going to recover gradually over the next coming quarters, just for the sole purpose of when you reopen, you will certainly perform better than when you're closed, that... Um, silver will start to get back the benefit of being, yes, an investment metal and a monetary metal, but also as, as demand picks up for its industrial uses, uh, silver has a lot of opportunity here to catch up to the price of gold with, with both still going higher, but silver uh, moving more higher from here uh, in, at an accelerated rate relative to gold. A famous story um, was... Uh, I was standing in the euro dollar pit and 
in came this young blonde haired kid, uh, walked out of the options pit, uh, cause I stood right at the options pit. He literally stepped into the futures pit and he asked where front month futures were. And it was this young kid. And all of a sudden he, everybody screamed the market at him one, two, one, two, or, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but he started buying thousand lots from various large traders in the pit and everybody kind of looked at each other and said, who is that guy? And then somebody turned to somebody and said, that's Doogie. And everybody was like, well, who's Doogie? And then sure enough, that person was Don Wilson, who's the, the founder of DRW Trading. And it was him hedging, hedging a, a, a very large options position that he had just put on in the options pit. He came into the pit to hedge it himself rather than give the order to a broker. But it was one of those moments where you know, it doesn't matter what you look like or who you are or how big you are, because, you know, there was a, a lot of time where liquidity providers went not to the biggest order in the pit, but to the tallest guy in the pit because brokers could see over the crowd and the tallest guy in the pit would have his hands up and he would ab absolutely get the trade because brokers could actually physically see him. So it was uh, interesting that, you know, kind of dynamite and order flow can come from all sizes in open outcry. So I thought that was just a really interesting moment uh, to see that actually happen. Yeah. You know, and, and we talked a lot about how you've been through transitions and I'm so thankful for everything you've done to transition from pit to screen because I am really somebody who was able to start and see the pits and see how the markets work before the screens. But once the screens became available to us, as you know, I was one of the very first screen traders and for me, it just provided such a great opportunity for someone like myself who wasn't tall. And when I stood in the S&P pit, I was actually in one of my recent podcasts I was talking about, I, st I stood in front of Earl. I don't know if you may, you may or may not Earl, but Earl's 6'8". And every time I turned around, I was like looking at, into a wall of a man. I'm like, nobody's ever going to see me, let alone <laughs> trade with me. So it was, uh, you know, I'm so thankful that we are on, on electronic markets to give me the opportunity to to, to have a career in, in trading. I say, actually, every time I see Leo Malamed, who you and I talk to all the time, every time we see him at a conference, I always go up to him and shake his hand and go, Leo, thank you so much <laughs> because you gave me the opportunity to be a trader uh, on the screens. And, and he's always so, so grateful and gracious every time I see him. Yeah, Leo brought Globex. Leo is the, was the, the incredible mind that brought that electronic system uh, to see me group. Just a, a really exciting person you do, you feel proud of being in the industry when you, when you shake his hand and, uh, and you share stories with him um, and talk about an active trader, that man, I, I'm sure he's still an active trader. Well, when I was in his, I was in his office a couple of years back, I go in, he just puts his finger up for a second and goes like, be quiet. And he was talking about something he was doing with the <laughs> in his office. We talk about uh, a piece of history. His office is unbelievable. Every time I go on there, I'm just looking around at all the different things he's done. He's just, I, I, we could talk all day about Leo, but I want to talk about some things that are happening. Actually, today, you and I got on this call right after we heard Chairman Powell speak. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on what he said today? And we'll stay specifically into maybe some of your thoughts on, on how what Powell had said uh, impacts the small caps. Great, great question. And yeah, we were actually just watching Chairman Powell speak. I'm, I'm not going to obviously comment on his speech other than uh, some really important points to, to give our audience things to think about. And that is, 
the things that the Federal Reserve does, things that our regulators do, things that uh, the government's trying to do. And what the key thing they're trying to do is, one, obviously, um, help this, this country and the world out of this pandemic that we're in. But secondly, is, is the economy itself and bringing our economy back and bringing workers back. And as various lawmakers and our financial leaders like Mr. Powell are doing are trying their best to keep this economy going and strong. And the best way to do that is to bring our workers back uh, to their, their positions in companies and small caps are those companies here in the United States. Uh, primarily they're mostly domestic companies. So the, the benefit, the benefactors of these incentive plans and things like uh, small business loans being increased or, uh, a new, a new program being uh, uh, brought up by the House and the Senate to bring you know, $3 trillion back to the economy in the United States in this next round are all things that are trying to benefit our economy and these companies within the United States that bring back uh, uh, our U.S. employees. And those are small caps. So that's why you see small cap, the small cap index, the Russell 2000, step up and, and outperform other benchmarks in the marketplace. So you get, you get the big swings uh, to the upside with, uh, with the, the Russell and outperforming as it's done in the last few weeks. Yesterday, obviously, it outperformed to the downside as the Russell 2000 stocks do. They're, you know, they're smaller in nature. Um, the sectors are, are, are heavily weighted in, in uh, things like uh, financials and, and healthcare. You know, healthcare is one of the reasons the, the index has been outperforming as as these numbers in the pandemic level off and, and improve. Healthcare is where more people will be able to get back to their jobs to do things other than uh, uh, help patients that have the uh, COVID-19 or coronavirus. And these uh, these healthcare work companies do other services that hospitals and other uh, medical providers haven't been able to focus on that generate revenue for their companies. So that's why uh, one of the reasons you see outperformance in the Russell 2000. So this index and the futures contracts at CME are just a tremendous vehicle to get in and out of that volatile index as it, as a, an investment vehicle, as a hedging vehicle, um, as a speculative vehicle. And, it, it trades in the hundreds of thousands of contracts at CME, and it's just a fantastic product for people to take a view as you hear things on TV or uh, read uh, uh, about these in, in several of the, the newspapers online and in other places. But small caps react to these numbers in, in a big way. So uh, I... I see the Russell 2000 as just being a tremendous trading opportunity uh, for the trading community. Personally, I trade the Russell on a regular basis, and it's really the only other product besides the E-mini S&P out of the major indices that I trade. And it's really because on a consistent basis, it has pretty good volatility. Now, right now, everything's volatile, so <laughs> you know that's it's just we're just in a in a crazy time. But in general. The, the the Russell has consistently pretty good volatility. What are your thoughts on why the Russell is probably one of the more volatile indices out there? 
Russell 2000 um, has various sectors that really drive the, the index pricing, and it has to do with the sectors and their weightings, right? So um, unlike large caps or NASDAQ, uh, the NASDAQ, which is heavily technology uh, weighted, the Russell 2000 has financial services and healthcare and uh, producer durables and consumer discretionary uh, weightings that are your top your top weightings within the Russell 2000. So these are all these these smaller companies that are domestic in nature and when there's and, and and really tend to lead the charge coming out of recessions as their business models are just quicker to respond to improvements in our economy. So small caps are uh, those key drivers. NASDAQ kind of uh, sometimes lead the, the charge and then other other markets follow. The fact that the, the weightings in the Russell 2000 are, are more on the financial and healthcare uh, side and less in technology, it's not going to follow that big technology lead as you get into large caps and into the, uh, the NASDAQ 100. So that's why Russell acts the way it does on its on its own is because of those weightings but uh it outperforms to the upside but it's it's also very volatile to the downside because of those weightings so it's it's uh what i like to call is uh, a tradable investable index that really represents the u.s economy in a big way in these days hey everybody a quick pause here to talk about FTSE russell They are a leading global provider of benchmarks, analytics, and data solutions. The Russell 2000 Index is a key benchmark for small-cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 Index Futures Contract, symbol R-T-Y. For more information on FTSE Russell and their products, please visit FTSERussell.com. Yeah, it's such an important market to watch right now. I wish that the mainstream media would talk about it a little bit more because it actually has, in my opinion, it's actually more relevant to the U.S. market than maybe some of the other indices that are talked about on a regular basis. Absolutely. Um, It is definitely more U.S. revenue-based and less uh, sensitive to global events. But there is a, a small piece of uh, small caps that supply those bigger large cap companies in some way. So there is some global exposure in small caps, but it's just not as, as large as uh, in large caps. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's really based on, uh, on the U.S. economy and, and the numbers here. Yeah, there's, there's definitely global effects that impact uh, small caps. But it's it's definitely more sensitive to uh, to U.S. Uh, uh, events rather than global. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, the micro because we've actually had just recently we had the one year anniversary for the micros, and it's obviously been a huge success for for all of the indices: the Nasdaq, the Dow, the S and P, and the Russell. How have you at FTSE Russell? looked at the micros thus far? Well, first of all, congratulations to CME Group. Um, you know, micros has been the most successful launch of a, a futures product in their entire history. Uh, and it was, and it's quite an honor to be part of that launch with the Russell 2000 micros. We couldn't be happier with the performance of 
the product at CME Group and the volumes that we're seeing come come uh, for interest in Russell 2000 micros. It's been a, a tremendous growth and volumes have just skyrocketed. And, and it's just really, really exciting to see. Not only is it, are, is it the volume, but it's the diversification of who's trading the product um, and the fact that it's global. So there's a, a major distribution excitement uh, that uh, you know folks in Asia are trading the product. There's uh, there's numbers uh, volume numbers coming out of Europe and all, uh, obviously out of uh, the United States as well. But the fact that this thing trades around the clock and has global distribution, and along with the sectors that trade segments in the market that traded and and the fact that there's institutional interest in the product as well tells you that the entire ecosystem is benefiting from Russell 2000 Micro as a team group, and we couldn't be happier. Uh, that, that uh, we're seeing this and I'm very excited to see it continue to grow. Hey everybody, a quick pause here to talk about FTSE Russell. They are a leading global provider of benchmarks, analytics, and data solutions. The Russell 2000 Index is a key benchmark for small cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 Index Futures Contract, symbol R-T-Y. For more information on FTSE Russell and their products, please visit FTSERussell.com. With everything that you're looking at on the macro side of things, do you think that we go back and test or even take out the lows made in March? Yes, fundamentally. No quantitatively. So right now that's not you know, within the probable bounds of, of Keith's risk range. Um, but that that could change. Um, certainly, it could change with a, a different volatility, uh, a different volatility setting for the market. So right now, you know, we've seen you know the VIX come from you know let's call it 80 all the way down to sort of what we would consider to be a very important signal level, which is around 31 on the VIX, uh, specifically for the S&P 500. You know, that thing held like a champ. You know, this past week in terms of um you know kind of the market take the market taking you to that level, sucking everyone back in, you know, and 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 kind of collapsing from there from a from a price perspective. And so, yes, um, in the context of our fundamental view, it's very likely the market could take up, you know, what's lows in the back half of the year as the credit cycle really starts to ratchet up and you start to see, you know, asset write downs and, and charge offs and, and equity issuance, you know, and equity recapitalizations across a lot of these different sectors of the economy. You know, that's something that we definitely see as emerging as a theme. And, you know, and, you know, when the market starts to price that in by, you know, sort of sending a signal through the volatility channel is when you could start to have that conversation about taking out the lows. But again, we don't need to make a call that the market has to take out the lows on, on May 2nd. You know, I think the call on May 2nd headed into next week is, you know, did you a appropriately position for, you know, the, the market to continue declining uh, and, and B, did you appropriately position yourself out of all the things that consensus was forced to chase, you know, over the last couple of weeks. And I think that those are the most important risk management things. You, um, those are the important risk management uh, setups that you can sort of apply to your, to your uh, portfolio at the current juncture, because again, you know, the market has a really it, the market is impressively good at making people to make uh, forcing investors to make the worst possible decision at the worst possible time. And I think at the highs of Wednesday, a lot of people bought into this sort of cyclical recovery narrative or this V-shaped recovery narrative that's being propagated around by Wall Street and, and the, you know, these analysts and PMs that have these Excel based you know, linear frameworks around how the economy works. And the reality is the world is a lot more nonlinear, as we've learned, and we're likely to continue learning uh, as we progress throughout the year. You said your goal was to get involved in trading and you felt that the CMT was going to be a pathway to helping you become 
a trader. What did the CMT teach you? Yeah. So the CMT, um, going into it, I probably had, uh, you know, kind of a misrepresentation in my mind of what it really was. And I thought it was studying classical chart patterns, um, super basic, you know, stuff like that. What the CMT teaches really is being able to design a portfolio, risk management, more risk management, risk management on top of that, and then how to design a strategy uh, of money management that helps you no matter what you trade, whether it's stocks, whether you're a portfolio manager, a long-only equity fund, whether you're a futures trader, it touches on all these different topics that it doesn't matter what, like I said, if you're, if you're a classical technical analyst with chart patterns, if you're somebody who relies heavily on indicators, if you are more of a market profile uh, um, connoisseur, it touches on, level one kind of touches on all these different aspects of technical analysis, Elliott Wave, um, but it gives you that first level gives you kind of a big overview of look you're a futures trader you're probably going to you're probably going to want to focus maybe on volume profile and market profile maybe indicators like vwap uh, basic moving averages can help you and so it doesn't matter what you trade if if there is price and there's volume the CMT program will certainly help you with that and that first level kind of just is that breakthrough into introducing you to all these different ways within kind of the overarching technical analysis that you can manage money and manage your risk. What I find interesting about this is that you went that route for the CMT to help you with your trading. And so many other people, I think they really don't even consider that route and they end up going to educators instead. I'm curious as to how the CMT program actually helped you become a better trader. Yeah, so that's that's a great question. I was in at least one kind of educator tri- type trading room before um, and during, actually, when I was going through the CMT program, and it was kind of funny because people would be like, why do you need that? That's kind of, you know, theoretical, it's overkill, it's too much. Um, But there's no way for me personally, that I would have studied that hard and gone to that level of understanding of the material without signing up for this program. I mean, it's not like it's overly expensive, but if you're gonna spend a couple thousand dollars per level, trying to find your way through this. And if you're a person that doesn't like to fail, you don't want to sign up for an exam and all your family and friends are asking you, what are you studying for? And then you go fail it. So you you put yourself through this and you want to come out with a passing grade. And if I wouldn't have, if I wouldn't have signed up for that, I would not have understood, you know, kind of the necessity of a a proper risk management approach. Before this, I was, on the average, I was gambling. I mean, I guess one could make the point that you're always gambling when you're trading, but I'm gambling with an edge, and that's knowing where I'm wrong before I get in, 
you know, where my profit target might be, whether it's a futures contract or options or a stock position or whatever. And I wouldn't have known those things had I not kind of put myself through the gauntlet that's the CMT program. I know I'm, I sound like I'm a paid shill for the CMT program. I'm certainly not. I get nothing for, for pitching it. But without that, for me, I probably would have gone through trading account after trading account because I was, I was just you know, shooting from the hip without it. And it gave me the background and the basis I needed to be able to, to understand that you really should think about what you stand to lose before you think about what you stand to gain in any of this. And I've seen a lot of, you know, traders over the years that have unfortunately gone the other way because they didn't understand the risk. I want to dive in a little bit more about your strategy for trading options. Now, let's have a little fun with this. Look at someone like me. You know I'm an outright futures trader and mostly the E-mini S&P. And I really consider myself more of an intraday swing trader. And I've been trying to find a way to implement options. And I've been saying this for a while on the show. Everyone's got to be like, Anthony, come on now, figure, figure it out. But you know what it is? It's just as it's like, once it starts getting busy again, I go back to what's made me money and go back to my comfort zone. I don't want to be putting sure. on positions when it gets this volatile in Mark, you know, when I'm not a hundred percent sure of what I'm doing. So uh, walk me through how you would maybe help me learn on how I could start utilizing options for me as a, as a day uh, futures trader. Right. Okay. So what I would tell you and what I tell clients that are, that are like you that are day trading or swing trading futures is this. Now, um, the caveat is in today's environment with the S&P volatility so high and the options overpriced, it's a little more difficult <laughs> because the options are so expensive. But in more normal markets, it's actually a really great strategy is instead of um, – instead of buying or selling futures, you can use the weekly options. There's in the S&P, there's options that trade, I'm sorry, that expire on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So every other day of the week, there's options expiring. So instead of going along a futures contract and placing a stop loss, which uh, anyone that's ever traded futures knows, there's a good chance you're going to get stopped out right before the market goes the way you wanted it to go. It just happens. I don't know why it does. But if you, if you, get a buy signal and you buy a call option instead, let's say the option expires tomorrow and in more normal conditions, you might be able to buy that option for, you know, maybe 10, 15 points in the S&P out of the money for three to $500. That's your total risk. No matter what happens, your total risk is what you paid for the call. It expires tomorrow. So you can get it cheap. You can get it close to the money. And if the S&P moves up 10, 15 handles, you probably pick up almost half of that or at least a third of that. So it's just a slower way to do it. The, obviously, it's not as exciting, but the nice thing is, let's say you get into the trade and the S&P drops 30 points all of a sudden and then rallies back. If you were trading futures, you probably would have been stopped out, but your option's still going to live until it actually expires. So you always have a foot in the door and there's always a chance to recover. So it gives you lasting power. So that's one thing you could do. Uh, another thing that I help my clients do is not necessarily buy calls or puts for speculation, but buy it for insurance. So if you really want to trade the futures, you could buy a go along a futures contract and then just buy a cheap put for catastrophic insurance just in case the bottom falls out. And you use that instead of a stop. And that, too, will give you lasting power. So even if the market, you know, Trump tweets or something happens and everything goes wild for an hour, 
your put's protecting you if, if things go back to normal, then the, you know you, you have a chance to recover as opposed to being stopped out and watching from the sidelines. A question I constantly get is what platform do I use to trade futures? Well, I use TT. They are the world's fastest commercially available futures trading platform. Now they have integrated tools for advanced options trading, cryptocurrencies, and trade surveillance. You could try it now for free at tryttnow.com. It's so funny hearing you say that you're a wheat trader because now that I think about it, a lot of my friends that trade wheat, they call themselves wheat traders. They don't call themselves futures traders. I don't know that I've ever right. said I'm an E-mini S&P. When someone's asked me this question, I never said I'm an E-mini S&P futures trader because they probably would be like, okay, well, what, what is that? And I've just always <laughs> right. said, I've always said futures. Uh, and, but you're so right. It, it seems as though specifically t to wheat that it's, it's a real specialty in the future space. And you talked about how you look at fundamentals, whether you didn't mention technicals. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, like how, how much of that, of the pie is, uh, fundamentals, weather technicals. Sure. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I probably have a, a sort of multi-prong approach uh, to to trading, um, but technicals are probably like the least important. I mean, I never look at like moving averages or, you know, stochastics or, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, I do use charts, but but mostly, I mean, I'm I'm looking at. Uh, probably daily, weekly, historical charts, right? So, like, I'm very interested in, in you know, historical ranges to, as a, and that's sort of as a part of my process to determine value, right? So, I'm kind of like a, a fundamental value type of trader. So, technicals to me are are really, um, it's kind of like, I mean, to be honest, technicals are it's kind of like astrology to me, right? It's kind of entertaining, right? And it it can be useful. Uh, but it's not something I really like believe in or really like commit like capital to, um, for me as a value trader, right. I, my sort of training and experience really comes from like working with like commercial grain traders in what is really like a commercial, like the Minneapolis grain exchange, the hard red spring wheat futures contract is really like a commercial contract as opposed to like more of that financial speculative, um, kind of contract. So my approach is fundamental value, right? So for me, like the trend is not my friend usually, right? For me, I'm usually uh, going against the grain, so to speak, right? So if we're in a downtrend and, you know, every day wheat's getting slammed, right? And funds are getting super short. Uh, what I am typically doing is looking for a spot where I can come in and say, okay, this is too far. We're into a value area, right? Based on, you know, what I see in supply and demand relative to price. And then I can come in and I can, I can approach, you know, build a trade around, you know, getting long or bull spread or some combination or a relative value type of situation where I can be buying wheat and selling something else or buying one particular type of wheat versus another type of wheat. Um, so that's kind of, whereas technicals are oftentimes is more about momentum, right? And so that's something for me that I'm, I'm very skeptical of like that momentum strategy. And even just like with technical analysis, the, the whole concept to me for most technicals is, is that like what's happened in the past and whether your time frame is like intraday or, you know, the last several weeks that you can kind of 
come up with some kind of calculation based on the recent past and then say like, okay, because of that, and I put it into this formula, it tells me that tomorrow the market is going to do this. Like I'm very skeptical of that. So for me, what's exciting about trading and especially with, with agricultural commodities is, is that really, you know, it, it doesn't matter what happened two weeks ago or what the market has been, what the market did yesterday. If there's some new fundamental input, market has to reprice today. And the past is not, uh, is not going to necessarily dictate what the future is going to do in terms of price action. So to me, that's like that whole technical piece is just something that I am skeptical of. And I just, I don't really use in my practice very often. So you talked about how you trade like between 10 and 15,000 contracts a month, and you're really kind of going against the grain, as you said, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I'm, I'm curious as to why majority of the traders that I talk to in the ag space, especially wheat, that pretty much all of you are trading spreads. Very, very rarely have I ever come across an outright wheat trader. Why is it that your method of trading is going against the grain and just spreading? Well, um, so spreads are, for one, they're they're deeply connected to like the fundamentals, right? So when we when we're when we're looking at like actual wheat, right? We're really concerned with with basis and with like the convergence between the futures contract and the and the physical wheat at a delivery point. And so we're really tied into already like the storage economics, the delivery economics. And so that that uh, that concern over like the, the fundamental actual wheat market uh, really informs um, an opinion about what the spreads should do. So if you are if you're dialed in to the physical wheat market and the cash grain market, then it's hard to not trade spreads uh, for one thing. Uh, but I think also that when we trade spreads, um, we can also kind of trade the flat price as well. Right. So, I mean, I, I would even if you don't take any flat price positions, the, the flat price still um, it, it still affects spread relationships. It affects you know, intermarket spreads, calendar spreads. So I would say in a way, even though I'm not actually necessarily trading a lot of outright long short positions, um, I'm still trading flat price. I'm just using it. I'm just using spreads to do that oftentimes. So if I think wheat is going to go up, right, then I, what you have to ask yourself is you have to say, well, what's going to go up the most, right? Or if there's, you know, if funds are short, this particular contract or then that's that's going to gain in value, right? Relative to something else, maybe relative to corn or relative to another part of the curve. And so there's, in a way, we're always trading flat price, even when we are trading spreads. It's maybe a kind of a roundabout uh, answer to your question, but I would say that we we really can't trade spreads without also being affected by flat price. And part of it is too, Anthony, is that you know it's just it's fun to trade a lot of volume. And so I think that's another thing that like in the grain, grain markets, it's like, you know, it's a lot more satisfying just to be like, just to be trading um, and to be uh, trading a lot of volume versus like taking a much smaller position. And then, um, and to like the flat price, 
there's a lot of noise in that, especially on an intraday basis, right? There's a huge amount of noise. And that kind of random noise, that sort of random volatility, some people really like to trade off of that. And I think that's where a lot of like day trading technical kind of people, they, they operate in that, which to me is a lot of that is noise. And my edge really comes from my fundamental analysis of the wheat market. And so I have to figure out a way to filter out that noise. And so by focusing less on especially short-term flat price movement and getting into spreads, I'm able to to really sort of take advantage of my what I would consider as my edge in the market, right? And it sort of filters out some of that random variation and gets more into like the fundamentals. For me, I always really accepted the crypto as a trading product. You know, yeah. when trade for when crypto really first started, I didn't really look at it too much as a currency. I looked at it and said, you know what? I, I think that technically this is probably a decent product to trade because I don't know what, what else is it really going to go off of? You know, I mean, I, yeah. I couldn't really look at fundamentals or anything like that. And, and I didn't start trading it right away. You know, Bitcoin was out for several years before I began trading it. But right. a, a question I have for you is we, we've, well, how, how old is Bitcoin now? Right. I mean, Bitcoin is 12 years old. I guess. So you know, 11, yeah, 12 so, yeah. years old. 11 and a half. Yeah. Something I'm still not really sure of is, is it, is it a currency? Is it a commodity? Is it a store of value? Is it all three? What is your take on that? Yeah, so, you know, it's a good question. I mean, let me answer from a, from a regulatory standpoint, first of all. Obviously, we are a very regulated company being, you know, regulated by the CFTC, the, you know, the, the, the futures regulatory arm in the U.S., right, um, and offering futures on, on cryptocurrencies. So we view, we view Bitcoin as, as they do as, as a commodity, right? Um, that means it is regulated by the CFTC under a certain premise. And, you know, even fraud and manipulation of the spot market is under CFTC's jurisdiction. But they obviously are, you know, regulatory, the body of the futures, our futures market. So we definitely look as when we're what products are we going to list or how are we going to list them what do they mean we we stick with the you know the view of a commodity and things like that rather than a security or any other you know type of you know asset class so i mean it depends on the different instruments right you know bitcoin probably is more akin to a currency like commodity in the way it's used um it's you know transfer of money maybe a store of value and things like that versus an ethereum or ethereum like um contracts which are much more like utility kind of um uh kind of commodities you know more akin to you know I don't know, corn, you know, those things that, I mean, I, I guess you could say that with Bitcoin as well from a mining aspect, but Ethereum also has that component of its use case in the underpinning of smart contracts and things like that. So, so, you know, in short, we really look at them as commodities and that's how we go about deciding what to list and think, you know, along our regulatory platform. Well, you mentioned Ethereum. Let's just go there right now. You guys <laughs> are the first to launch Ethereum futures. Why yeah. did you decide to do this and how's it going so far? Yeah, so um, let me start with the why really. I mean, following on from your previous question, you know, when we look to launch 
you know, our spot market, we, we had a view that, you know, anything we want to launch as a spot contract, we'd love to be able to list as a future, you know. So, you know, we launched spot back in, you know, uh, April 2019, you know, with the four instruments, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin. Um, and we know Bitcoin obviously had already been approved as a futures contract for, you know, for, for uh, CME and, and then ICE and, you know, CBOE in the time. So we really wanted to move forward and be able to start listing other contracts. So we've been working with the CFTC a long time with Ethereum. You know, we commented on their, you know, um, their public question, you know, earlier last year. And, uh, you know, we we've just driven that forward, really. So we wanted to launch it because we do believe in, you know, that value of a commodity to help price, you know, underlying instruments. And, and there that's where, you know, the Ethereum blockchain with its, you know, use of Ether as the kind of gas, the the fuel to drive, you know, how you pay for the smart contracts. We definitely see that akin to like jet fuel or other other things that people need to um, run their business. And so having a having an Ether based future allows customers, miners, other people that, you know, you have a have a smart contract on, on an Ether blockchain it allows them to have kind of price determinism of you know, we know how much we're going to have to use or may have to use over a certain period. We may know how much we're going to mine over a certain period. And and they want to have a little bit less um, risk against the price movement of that value of Ether and essentially, you know, uh, things like that. So so we've been driving to push an Ether future so that people can really explore what it means to be able to hedge their, hedge their exposure to underlying Ether, whether that is whether it is a fund who holds ether whether it is a miner whether it is someone as i said who has needs that needs or their customers need um, you know to use the gas on the ether blockchain so um, how's it been it's a brand new contract we're a we're a very new market so it's it's a growth period um, um, you know getting people onboarded to our our platform is it's not a slow process i don't want to, i don't want it to be thought like that but it's not just scan your id on a on a website and off you go you know i mean you can do that with our onboarding for our spot market um um well and, and i don't want to play down the approach we take for you know aml kyc which again we have to because of money licenses and things like that but getting getting to be able to trade futures um has a lot more regulatory oversight from the cftc so we have to follow certain practices and, and make sure we do things you know you know according to what our guidelines on our on our rule book is and in doing that there's a little bit more interaction we're a very customer focused kind of driven company as well um you know customers um who who may have a problem on boarding we're very engaging we reach out to them but then anybody is allowed to become a direct member of our of our exchange and trade our futures contracts so Going back to you know the adoption, it's growth right now. It's it's getting people on board and getting people into the marketplace, letting them explore, understand the contract. So, you know, hopefully, you know, we'll start seeing some really good growth over the next you know weeks, months, you know, and and we can be the prominent exchange for listing, you know, physical delivered you know assets on on cryptocurrencies and other things. Hey everybody, I want to take a quick pause and talk about RJO Futures. They are a long-standing brokerage firm with personal broker relationships to learn, discuss, and trade the futures markets. To learn more about RJO Futures, please visit rjofutures.com. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can listen to all of our episodes on futuresradioshow.com, iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher.